Good morning. I'd like to encourage each of you to take a Bible out. Open it up to the book of Mark. We'll be reading from there in just a moment. The Gospel according to Mark. As we begin to enter into a period of worship, uh, or a period of, of, of study of God's Word, I was thinking about what we studied last week. Um, last week, uh, much of the world was celebrating Easter, celebrating the resurrection of Christ, and we were looking at the way in which Christ has described Himself um, throughout His Word, especially in the Gospel of John. And He used these I Am statements, all hearkening back to the phrase that God used whenever Moses, uh, as He approached Moses to, to take this message to the children of Israel, and Moses said, well, who do I tell them is sending me? And God said, I am who I am. So tell them that I am sent you. All these phrases harken back to that, to that statement that Jesus is God. And one of those statements found in John chapter 6, verse 35 was, I am the bread of life. And he proclaimed that after feeding the 5,000. And later on that day, as we were heading home, writers started asking some questions about that event, the feeding of the 5,000. Um, and... and what was going on during the ministry of Jesus at that time? And, and his questions kind of, they resonated with me. And I was not able to really not think about them throughout the week. So I started to study those and look into that. You know, why did Jesus display his power in that way? Why was it he chose to do this, to, to display the, the miracles of God in such a way? Was there more to the miracle than just the feeding of, of some hungry listeners? And I hope that as we look at the passages that describe this, and, and, and we will be able to glean some knowledge from the Word of God about the character of God that's seen in the actions of His Son here. A little bit of context, I believe, helps us out as we consider the miracle that we're going to be looking at. It's recorded in four places. Matthew chapter 14, verses 13 through 21. Mark chapter 6, which we'll be reading in just a moment, verses 30 through 44. Luke chapter 9, verses 10 through 17, and John chapter 6, verses 1 through 13. Now, I mentioned that to say this. This is the only miracle, the only miracle that Christ performed that all four Gospels take note of. It's the only one you'll find that they all mention something about it. Uh, <clears throat> all of them that, that, that speak about it, they speak about it in the same way, but they have slightly different uh, points that are made from each one of their viewpoints. Uh, and so I want to spend some time this morning looking at Mark's viewpoint of the, uh, of the account. Now, what we will learn is that they are on the northern side of the Sea of Galilee whenever this, this miracle is performed. If you have a, a map in the back of your Bible, or if you can picture the Sea of Galilee... Uh, near the top of the sea was a city named Bethsaida, and Luke trip, uh, attributes the account to being near that city. And that they're doing this, this miracle, uh, Jesus performs this near the time of the Feast of Passover. So Jews are making their way to Jerusalem, and, and along the way as they are traveling, they, they stop and they, they spend a day being taught and being healed by Jesus. And so let's pick up in verse 30 of Mark chapter 6 and continue reading. It says, Then the apostles gathered to Jesus and told Him all the things, <clears throat> both what they had done and what they had taught. And He said to them, Come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. 
for there were many coming and going, and they did not have, uh, and they did not even have time to eat. So they departed to a deserted place in a boat by themselves. But the multitude saw them departing, and many knew him, and ran there on foot from all the cities. They arrived before them and came together to him. And Jesus, when he came out, saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion for them because they were like sheep, not having a shepherd. So he began to teach them many things. When the day was now far spent, his disciples came to him and said, This is a deserted place, and and already the hour is late. Send them away that they may go into the surrounding country and villages and buy themselves bread, for they have nothing to eat. But he answered and said to them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy two hundred denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat? But he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them to make them all sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in ranks of hundreds and in fifties. And when he had taken the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, blessed, and broke the the loaves, and gave them to his disciples to set before them, and the two fish he divided among them all. So they all ate and were filled. And they took up twelve baskets full of fragments and of the fish. Now those who had eaten the loaves were about five thousand men. So what I want us to do as we look at this is to consider what this miracle reveals to us. And it certainly is revealing to us something about Jesus and about who he is. And the first thing that's hard not to pick up on whenever we look at this account is the compassion of Jesus. He is first motivated by a desire for his apostles or for his disciples to rest. They had returned from being sent out. Uh, Christ had sent them out to preach repentance. He had sent them out to cast out demons and to heal those who were sick. And they had returned from this, what we sometimes call the limited commission to go to the Israelites. And whenever they came back, Jesus recognizes what they had done. And he calls them to come and to rest in a secluded place. He sees the work and the toil and the labor that they have put forth. And he recognizes that they need a rest from that. And so they put out in a boat to go to a secluded place, but the people see him and flock to that area. And it says as they land that he looks on them, and yet again the compassion of Jesus is on display as he looks to them and sees that they are scattered as sheep without a shepherd. And so he begins to do something. This is the, the definition of compassion. He looks upon the people. He looks upon his apostles, the disciples. He looks upon the people who are are following him. And he has love for them. But love more than just to say, I recognize you've done a hard thing. That must have been pretty hard. That must have been pretty bad, all all that you've done. And you must be pretty tired. I hope things get better for you. I hope you get get filled. I hope you you get rested. He acted upon the love. Compassion is love in action. And so... In acting upon his love for his disciples, he brought them away for a place to rest. Then acting upon his love for the people, he he began to minister to them, to teach them. And that compassion that we see is motivated by his view of them. As we see, he saw them scattered as sheep without a shepherd. Is the same exact 
phraseology that we see in Matthew chapter 9, the reason why he sent the disciples out in the first place on that, on that limited commission was because he looked at the house of Israel and saw that they were like sheep without a shepherd. And that compassion qualifies Christ to be the high priest, to be our high priest, to be the high priest that sees the needs of those who come to him and responds in love accordingly. Turn over. You can keep yourself marked here in, in, in Mark. But turn over to Hebrews for a moment. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 4. And start reading in verse 14. The Hebrew writer says, Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in times of need. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also subject to weakness." This was the purpose of the high priest in the days of, of, of Israel. The high priest was one who was like them. He was able to have compassion on them because he was a mere man and he was subject to the weaknesses that they were subject to. And this is what makes Jesus our great high priest was because he was made like them. He is able to sympathize. He is able to have compassion on them because he has been subjected to weakness. In all points, he was tempted, but he was found without sin. And so because of this, he is able to have compassion on us, to see the, the situations we are in, to feel love for us, and to move in action in that love, having experienced the same things that we have experienced. His compassion is revealed in this, in this miracle. But also the greatness of his power is on display in this miracle as well. The bread... He, he, he breaks this, uh, the bread and, and he distributes the fish and he feeds the 5,000. But maybe for just a moment we should consider what exactly is going on here in this meal. Because I think a lot of times we get in our, in our Western-oriented minds what he must have been doing here. He, he got his great big loaves of you know, French artesian bread and <clears throat> a couple big fish and, and, and he... He divided that up into a meal. And you know, if he had done that, if he had taken five large loaves of bread and, and five great big old tunas or something and fed 5,000 people, <clears throat> equally amazing. Still impossible for us to do today. But the truth is, he probably was distributing more along the lines of crackers and sardines to these people, or what we would consider crackers and sardines. Look over in John chapter 6. In John chapter 6 and in verse 9, John records this miracle. And whenever Jesus tells them and speaks to them about feeding the, 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 the people that were there, and Philip answers, asks that question, well, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them. Every one of them may have a little. And his, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish. But what are they among so many? So number one, we're talking about the, 
the meal for a young man, a young child, a lad as he is described, a young boy is this meal that they are going to, to use to feed all of them. And the barley loaves of that day were more likened to a, a small, almost like a tortilla shell that we would, a soft, a soft tortilla. It, it was a, a small bit of bread that was flat and, and not very large. And the fish was oftentimes pickled fish. That was the way they were able to, to take these fish and travel with them. And so we can almost see here the meal that a, a young boy's mother probably packed for him to say, if you get hungry on your journey, take some of this fish and bread and eat it. This is the meal that Jesus, or maybe we should even say the snack that Jesus is going to take and provide for 5,000 people. <clears throat> and not only did he offer that to a crowd of such a size, but he offered it to them in such a way that they were completely satisfied in what they ate. And they were able to take up 12 baskets of remnants. You can imagine the, the disciples as they, as they followed around, with, with their, with each with their basket and, and putting in uh, the, the remnants, the leftovers of this. The power of this miracle is absolutely mind-blowing. I mean, as you literally try to set and imagine what it must have been like to hand out the, the bread and the fish. What it must have been like to pick up the remnants. I can't fathom it. I can't fathom how this continues to just to not disappear as I hand it out. As it continues to fill up the basket as I take it up. <clears throat> and I believe this is intentional. I believe this is intentional in the miracles of Jesus and in the power of God. That it must be unexplainable because it comes from a source of unexplainable power. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 3. In Ephesians chapter 3, Paul writes about this in verse 20 when he says, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Paul was saying he has the ability to do far beyond what we can even imagine. And that abundant... And beyond comprehensive power is what is on display in this miracle. But one more thing is revealed about Jesus in this miracle. His compassion is seen and His power is certainly seen. But it is implied that He also has a desire for man to trust Him in this miracle as well. It is powerfully noted in this miracle that in order for them to receive blessings which come from God, one must follow the instructions that come from Him as well. Each author records that Jesus gave instructions before He gave sustenance. Matthew and Mark say Jesus commanded the people to sit. Luke and John say Jesus instructed the disciples, make the people sit. Before He was going to give them food, they needed to sit before Him. This is not just a commandment though, given for the people to sit down. This was also, uh, uh, there's also an element of this that was for the disciples as well. A test for them, especially for, for one disciple, Andrew, or excuse me, Philip, in, chapter, in John 6, where we read from just a moment ago, we see that in that account, Philip is expressly being, being tested here. Uh, as, as Jesus gives instruction to disciples, he says, give, you give them something to eat. John records an additional question that Jesus asks Philip. In verse 5, he turns to Philip and he says, where shall we buy bread that these may eat? Now, you know, that seems like a really strange question for Jesus to ask. 
Where are we going to get the bread to feed these guys? Where are we going to, where are we going to go buy this? Did Jesus momentarily forget who he was? What power that he had? What he was capable of doing? What he intended to do? No, I don't believe so. I believe he is purposefully testing Philip here. And did Philip view Christ as God? Did Philip, did Philip view Christ as the, the one who is able to do far more abundantly than we can think? And obviously, as we, lay, as we look later on in Philip's life, he doesn't necessarily learn this lesson here as Jesus is trying to help him to see. If you look over in John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Another one of those I am statements we looked at. No one comes to the Father except through me. And he said in verse 7, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you know him and you have seen him. And Philip, the same one that Jesus asked this question to in, in Chapter 6, Philip looks to him, looks to Jesus, looks to the Son of God and says, Lord, show us the Father and that's all we need. Show us the Father and it's sufficient for us. Having been with Christ all this time, having witnessed miracles that Christ was doing, like the feeding the 5,000, and he had not yet made the connection between Christ and and God being one. Christ would even respond, Have I been with you so long and yet you have not known me, Philip? Jesus desires to lead us to a greater trust in Him. And that is completely on view here in this miracle. The miracle reveals so much about who Jesus was. His compassion, His power, His desires for us. But I want to also suggest that in this miracle reveals so much about people as well especially in, in the people's response to this miracle. <clears throat> and the first thing we see, staying here in John now, in John chapter 6, the first thing we see in the response is that they were misunderstanding. They were, their response was a little misguided. Now, originally, or initially, initially, they had it right. Verse 14 says, These men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, This is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. This is looking back to Deuteronomy chapter 18 when Moses foretold of a prophet who would, who would be like Moses, who would be like him and would come into the world. Now, when we look back to Moses, what kind of prophet was Moses? Moses was the prophet who brought in God's law to the people. Moses was the prophet who ushered in the covenant with the people of God. And like Moses, Jesus is the prophet who comes in bringing the new covenant with God's people. And they saw that. They looked at him. They saw the signs he were doing. And they said, here he is. The prophet that Moses talked about. He is here. So they initially, initially understood. But how quickly their response reveals that even though they understood, they were misguided. Verse 15, Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. He departed again to a mountain by himself alone. The people saw the sign, and they said, Look, the prophet that is to come into the world, he's here. Let's get him. Let's make him king. Let's set up our kingdom, and let's overthrow Rome. We're ready to be the kingdom that we were once before. Jesus would later tell Pilate, at the, the mockery of a trial that he received, my kingdom is not of this world. If it had been, if it had been of this world, 
John chapter 6. I would have had people who were ready to rise up for me. They were ready to make me king. But my kingdom is not of this world. That was not Christ's purpose, to set up an earthly kingdom. These people were quick to act and slow to hear and slow to think. In Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, there it writes, Guard your steps as you go to the house of God and draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifices of fools, for they do not know they are doing evil. Do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. We, like the people in John chapter 6, need to be slow to presume the will of God and long-suffering and listening carefully and attentively to His Word to make sure that we are acting under His authority. We don't want it to be said of us that we have been offering up sacrifices as fools, sacrifices which are evil. This miracle reveals that man oftentimes misunderstands the compassion and the power and the desires of God. It also reveals that man is oftentimes seeking God for the wrong reason. Verse 26 in John 6 goes on to say um, by Jesus, Most assuredly I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. They missed out on the power of God. They missed out on the compassion of God. Because, and they missed out on His ability to provide for them more than they could comprehend because they were so focused on the material thing that He had provided. So many times today we miss out on the power of God because of materialism. You see people today choose churches for the wrong reasons. Choose a church to go where they think they'll get what they want. This is where I'll be entertained the most. This is where the preacher has, has the, the funniest jokes. This is where the preacher keeps my attention the best. This, car, this group over here, they have the best band. That group that over there, they tell the best stories. Or maybe this group, they cook the best meals in their kitchens, which is literally what these people were looking for. Food. We oftentimes get caught up in the material things that come from God. And instead, we need to be looking for the true bread of life that gives life to the world. We don't need to look for churches that offer what we think is best. We need to look for churches that offer what is, what is most important, and that is the Word of God being preached. And when we find that, we need to hold close to it, and we need to try our best to walk with it. Romans 14 was where Paul wrote, the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. He could have said that in John chapter 6. That's a message that they needed to hear. That's a message that we still need to hear today. Righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. These are the kingdom of God, Paul would go on to say. But not only does this miracle reveal man's misunderstanding of materialness, <clears throat> it also reveals the dullness of man. Let's consider the way they complained about Christ. In John chapter 6, verse 41, they complained about Him because He said, I am the bread of heaven, or I am the bread which came down from heaven. And so they looked at him and said, wait a minute. You're the son of Joseph. We know your father. We know your mother. How can you possibly be the bread from heaven? You can't have come from heaven. And then 
even going on in, in verse 52, they, their dullness is on display as they struggle to, to understand what he said about consuming the bread of heaven and taking him literally. Um, verse 51, I am the living bread which comes down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the, for the life of the world. The Jews therefore quarreled among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Because of this, because of the dullness of their hearing, many of them left Christ. Many of them refused to follow Him the way they had been. Many of His disciples turned away. And so many demonstrate a similar dullness today, being unwilling to stay with Jesus. Unwilling to recognize Jesus for who He truly is and to make the most of the time that we have uh, that is given to us studying about Him and learning about Him. As He turned to His, his closest apost- uh, followers, the, the twelve, He said, will you go too? Will you leave as the rest have left? And it was Peter who responded to where or to whom He said, to whom shall we go? You have the words of life. Today, the world is filled with people who are dull of hearing. This is highlighted oftentimes in our minds after events like like Easter. Once a year, once a year doesn't justify enough of time with God. Once a month, once a week, Once a day doesn't justify enough time with God. The saints here at Lake Street have set aside three times out of the week that we're going to come together and we're going to study God's Word and we're going to sing praises to God's Word. And while that doesn't justify enough time, how important do we place our being in the presence of God? I want us to look over at Hebrews chapter 5 for a moment. Hebrews chapter 5, again, the Hebrew writer is writing about things pertaining to what, to what has already been said. But in verse 11, he, as, as he has tried to describe the way Jesus is the, the high priest under the lineage of the order of Melchizedek, he says there's much that we want to say about that. And it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. He was writing to people who were just like these people in John chapter 6. People who had been dull of hearing. He said, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are full of age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. He says those who are mature, those who have grown in Christ beyond babes, those who are able to eat solid food, how are they described? They are described as those who by reason of use. The New American Standard says those who by practice have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. 
We know what practice means. You look to sports. You look to the, the Kentucky Wildcats. We understand what practice means. They, they have set times that these are times that you're going to come and you're going to exercise your ability to play basketball. Exercise your ability to, to throw a football, to, to read a defense, to, to do whatever your sport requires of you to do. You're going to spend time devoted to becoming better, more mature in that sport. The Hebrew writer is saying for those who are mature in Christ, they have practiced through reason of, of use. They have made themselves exercised. They have been working themselves towards being able to tell both good and evil. And so what does that say? That says for those who are mature, if you want to stay that way by practice or by use of time, that must be spent in God and with God and in His Word. And if you are a babe in Christ, but you want to become mature, there is hope for you too. To get that way, it involves practice or reason of use, time and, 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 and spending that in God, with God and in His Word. What he's saying is if you're not using it, if you're not using the time that you have to grow closer to God, to do things which bring about maturity, then you are losing that time. And later, that author would directly link, in chapter 10, he would directly link the assembling of the saints with one another for the purpose of building up one another to love and to good works. Chapter 5, he says to be mature, you, for the reason of use, through practice, you exercised yourself to discern good from bad. Chapter 10, he said you come together to stir up yourself to see love and good works. These two passages go hand in hand. Every time that the saints assemble together, as he says in verse 25, not forsaking the assembling not forsaking the assembly, as, as many would maybe read this and say, well, I, I gathered for, for one assembly. I, I did it on Easter. Not forsaking the assembling. We're not forsaking the time when the saints say, let's come together and let's praise God and let's worship Him and let's study His Word. Why do we do that? So that we can press one another on closer to good works. So I can help be encouraged and strengthened to not be dull of hearing. Because dull of hearing leads to materialism. And dull of hearing leads to misunderstandings. Unfortunately, in the Scriptures and throughout history, man's response to, this, to the miracles and the power and the Word of God has led them to, to continually lean more towards spiritual dullness. The feeding of the 5,000 reveals the compassion and the power and the desire for God uh, that God has for men to trust in Him. All of that being manifested in the life of Jesus. It also reveals the tendency for men to completely misunderstand the will of God, to desire material things over spiritual, and then to become dull of hearing, which, as I said, leads to the first two things mentioned. 
So what is going to be our response? I wasn't there. You weren't there. None of us were there on the day when Jesus stood up before 5,000 people and took this tiny meal that might have even fit in the palm of a hand and distributed it to 5,000 people. We weren't there. But through inspired Scripture, that miracle needs to affect us. That, that miracle needs to be real to us. And if that miracle is real to us, how will we respond? Will we allow it to strengthen our faith in Him? What we allow it to see is, as Ronnie mentioned so well during the, the offering, that He is able to provide everything that we need. He offers true riches. He offers true rest and true peace. So will we serve Him? Or will we serve ourselves? Will we draw closer to Him into maturity? Or will we, through taking Him lightly, or even ignoring Him altogether, draw unto dullness of hearing? I say we must choose for ourselves this day, but we will choose for ourselves. We will choose whether or not we will work for that which, that which will not perish. John chapter 6, verse 27. Jesus, whenever they said, when, when He called out to them that the reason you're seeking after Me is because of this bread that I gave you. He said, don't work for that. Don't work, don't labor for that which perishes. That which is going away. And all is truly perishing. The world and everything in it is going to be burned up. So what do we work for? What do we labor for? Will it be money or comfort or worldly desires? Or will it be the everlasting bread of life, the Word of God, His righteousness and His holiness? I pray that we will look to the character of Jesus to see His blessings come only to those who humble themselves before Him, who set before Him, and follow His commandments. If there's something we can do this morning to help you to do that, by coming to Him in obedience, to trust and obey as we will, as we will sing, then I hope that you will let it be known right now. Please come forward as we stand and as we sing.